I think we have a a problematic division now of plot from character where character driven fiction is seen as more literary and highbrow and plot is looked down upon and I've always enjoyed the intermingling of both and I think that's what the 19th century novel does so well. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Fanula Austin, author of the novel Bronte's Mistress. I don't know. I'm not a big believer in love at first sight, um, but I think when it comes to ideas for novels, that's the closest that I can describe it to. I, I felt like I'd been struck by lightning. Fanula Austin is an England-born, Northern Ireland-raised, Brooklyn-based historical novelist. A lover of 19th century literature, she has a Bachelor of Arts in Classics and English from the University of Oxford's Merton College and a Master of Studies in English Literature from the University of Oxford's Corpus Christi College. She is the founder of the literary blog The Secret Victorianist, and she currently works as a creative strategist for Facebook. Her debut novel, Bronte's Mistress, was published by Atria Books in August 2020. Well, I want to start with your blog, The Secret Victorianist. I read that when you started it, that you didn't want your name associated with it, but that when you go to it now, it says, The Secret Victorianist is Finula Austin, which I found uh, almost a little humorous. So I wonder if you can talk about that transition or, or why you changed your approach. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I started my blog, The Secret Victorianist, back in the summer of 2013. I just completed a master's in 19th century English literature and was about to start a career in advertising and communications. I had all these essays on Victorian literature um, that I didn't want to just languish in folders uh, on my computer. The reason I had decided not to be an academic was I didn't want to work on writing essays that only a few people in the world could understand. So it was important for me to make literature and culture from the period more accessible. So I had the idea of using those essays initially and carving them up and putting them on the internet in the form of a blog, um, which seems like a pretty 2013 thing to do now. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't want my name associated with it because I was just starting this career in advertising and thought it would be really embarrassing if I had a blog with only a handful of followers, 20 followers on Twitter, etc. Um, so I came up with the name The Secret Victorianist. I brainstormed with my family, uh, actually, while I was home that summer before starting my new job in London. And um, it, partly it was a joke. Um, Victoria's Secret, the lingerie brand, had come to England um, the previous year. They just opened their 
flagship store in London. And so rather than Victoria's Secret, I thought Secret Victorianist had a fun ring to it. And if you go back to those early blogs from 2013, I was carving up chunks of my essays, but I also quickly started to do reviews of other places and events, especially in London, connected to the 19th century. So whenever I went to a play or visited um, a, a house or a property from the period, I started to take photographs, but always covering my face. So you'll see me holding up programs, um, blocking my features um, at the ballet or at the theater or at the opera. Um, you'll see me posing with my back to camera, looking wistfully into the distance. And that was part of the, jo the joke of it was I was a Victorianist, but a secret one because I was li living this double identity, um, also trying to launch my advertising career and staying up to date with all things digital. As my writing became more serious, my creative writing and I started working uh, on novels and eventually on Bronte's Mistress, um, my novel, which came out this year, I um, started to change my approach. So I became more and more open about running a blog as the blog became bigger. Um, so I think from around, I guess, four years ago, maybe there was a way to find out who the secret Victorianist was. So it wasn't very prominent on the website. It didn't have that header image that you're referring to. Um, but I did start listing it on my LinkedIn. It was also partly about becoming more confident. Um, as you get a little bit older, or certainly it's been true for me, I've been more comfortable with saying to the world, yes, this is who I am. And I stopped being so embarrassed by being interested in the 19th century and started seeing it as a quirk that could help you stand out. And part of that was actually talking about it in job interviews. So as my career in advertising progressed, I realized that this was something that made me potentially different from other candidates for positions and being able to talk about how the internet had brought me into contact um, with others who were interested in this pretty niche topic and talking about bizarre Victorian sensation novels was actually something pretty distinctive, which had direct applicability um, to my day job. Um, so when I sold my novel, I knew already that my plan would be to turn The Secret Victorianist into part of my platform for promoting my novel. I started to migrate my social media handles, so I went through stages. So my Facebook page, for instance, used to be called The Secret Victorianist. Um, then in late 2019, I shifted to make it Fanula Austin, the secret Victorianist. So there was some continuity for those who've been following for years. They weren't suddenly, who's this Fanula Austin person? And then pretty recently, I made the full transition there to Fanula Austin writer. Um, so the secret Victorianist continues to be my blog. I continue to talk about the topics I always have. But of course, increasingly, I'm also talking about my own writing and about the writing process in a little bit more detail, as well as doing that more traditional content about um, Victorian novels and Victorian culture. Well, I, I think that's incredibly just fascinating to, to hear that process, you know, going all the way back to 2013 and how it's launched you into this, this writing career. I was going to ask what you were just talking about. There's a certain synergy now to your social media presence, to your web presence between your website, the blog, and your social media platforms. Tell me about that strategy. Yeah, so my biggest thing is I don't want anyone to ever reach a dead end. Um, so what's great about the internet is it's not really linear storytelling. 
people can stumble across you and your content in any different way. Um, they could find a quiz that I wrote um, back on PlayBuzz from 2014. Um, they could come across my novel on Amazon. They could be hearing this podcast where you're interviewing me now. And I want no matter where they find me initially for every single person to have somewhere to go next. So if you go to fanuaustin.com, the secret Victorianist is one of the tabs on the website that will take you then to the blog site. On the blog at the end of every single article I write, I give people my social media handles so they can connect with me there. And I often ask them a specific question, like, do you know any other plays set in the 19th century that are currently in New York? Have you read any other Victorian novels on this topic? Then let me know on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, so every single place you find me, I give someone somewhere else to go a little bit deeper. And now on The Secret Victorianist, there's just such a wealth of content. Um, so it's it's been very interesting for me from a strategy kind of point of view, because the articles that have done best for me on social media are not the articles that do best for me on search and on Google. Um, so there are articles, particularly my deep dives into some Victorian poetry, which are consistently huge traffic drivers for me on the Google side, even though they're not the most exciting to post to Twitter or Facebook or to talk about on Instagram. And so I may have people who find me from that, who come in because of their interest in Tennyson, um, and then ultimately um, come back and, and discover that I have a book and connect with me that way. Mm -hmm. Well, can you, so on your blog, I did notice you, you shared your query letter that, that landed your agent that led to Bronte's mistress. And um, I think that's important for people to see people who aren't quite as far as long in the process. And, and I know you're in digital advertising. So some of the things you just went over are a little bit hard to, they, they might seem daunting. So for a writer who's out there, who's maybe in the middle of their first manuscript, how, how can you encourage them to at least get started on that path? Yeah, I think there's a few things in there. First up, uh, I think there's a an idea going around, which I don't agree with, which is that you have to have social media if you want to get an agent, get a book published or be a successful writer. And I don't think any of those things are true. Um, I know my agent and my now editor didn't really pay much attention to my biography when I queried them or when my submission came in what grabbed their attention was the part of the query letter talking about my book it was the story it was the topic and then when they read it it was the manuscript and in fact it was only after i signed with my publisher and we started to talk about marketing that i brought up my blog again and it seemed like a surprise to them um, the biography wasn't really something that they had focused on and there were also many successful writers who don't engage with social media at all so if you're the kind of person who knows this just isn't for you, it's going to be detrimental to your writing process or to your mental health, I would suggest don't do it. But the great things about social media are that you can take control of your brand and your image. You can connect um, with new readers. And as somebody earlier in your writing career, most importantly, you can connect with other writers. So the writing community across social media is such an amazing resource for information. And one of the reasons I put my query letter out there on my blog um, was because it was so helpful for me when I was at that stage of the process to see how other people had done it. I devoured on Writer's Digest and other websites um, those example query letters. I read every single post that Query Shark had done, especially those related to my genre, to dive in and see the what not to do's. 
I listen to podcasts like the um, Manuscript Wishlist um, Manuscript Academy podcast as well, where they spoke to agents about query letters in those first 10 pages. And I really did stalk um, different agents on Query Tracker to look at their typical response times. Um, part of this was just to make me feel less alone. I did a similar thing, especially with the first novel I wrote, which I didn't get published. Every time I reached a new word count milestone, so say once I reached 20,000 words, I would actually Google or search on social media the phrase reach 20,000 words novel and then see other people, even if their posts were from a few years ago, celebrating that milestone, talking about how they were doing, sharing some of the struggles they might be having. And even when I didn't comment, even when I didn't engage, even when I just consumed, it made me feel like I wasn't the only one in this. And writing can be very, very isolating. So if someone was getting started, I would say that listening is an amazing place to start. I know that there can be concern, especially from writers who are a little bit older, not digital natives, about getting it wrong. But you can't get it wrong when you're just listening and exploring. And if it seems really daunting, I often suggest to people giving themselves a certain number of minutes a day. So say if you can dedicate 15 minutes of an evening or 30 minutes to looking through different Instagram hashtags, um, exploring different writers who like what they're doing with their Facebook pages or looking at all the writing related hashtags on Twitter, it'll really give you a great handle on what's going on and hopefully help you feel like you have that community out there. Yeah, definitely. I can, I can attest to that myself. I recently learned about the hashtag writing community on Twitter and the hashtag WIP. I had no idea about people talking about their works in progress, but yeah, it really is quite wonderful. And, and I have to congratulate you on how all your hard work and how it, how it paid off. Thank you. And I will say on that, I didn't share much about my book when it was a work in progress. So if you look through my blog posts, um, you'll see that I didn't actually give updates. Like I reached a certain number of words on Bronte's mistress. Um, partly that was because it wasn't even called Bronte's Mistress at that point. And so much can change about a manuscript as you're working on it. The blog was a great way for me to continue engaging with that community without having to share stuff I wasn't ready to share yet. Um, so it formed a writing habit. It got me used to getting feedback and comments from people and putting something out there in the world uh, about my thoughts about reading and writing, especially related to the 19th century but without me having to reveal what felt too private. And I'm still doing the same with the next novel I'm write, working on. I've occasionally been sharing when I've reached a word count goal, but only on Instagram stories and without any details of the book, because who knows what's gonna happen. My agent hasn't even read it yet, and I, I don't wanna share details if it ends up shifting down the line, and, and that's not the exact story that will go out into the world. Mm -hmm. I, I saw that actually with your cat and you reached 83,000 words, I think it was. Yes, that's right. And she was not helping. She was running around the apartment screaming. So, yeah. That's funny. Um, so we've been talking mostly to writers. Let's transition a little into your readers. Um, but before we do, I want you to tell us more about your background and your interests in 19th century literature and you talked about this a little bit already about not wanting to be an academic and making it more accessible. So how did you transition from a scholar to a novelist? And tell me more about that interest in 19th century literature. Yeah, so it feels really cliche to say this, but I think I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, 
even before I went to school or could even write, I was making books. Um, my parents have examples of books I made where I drew terrible pictures and folded up pieces of printer paper and then demanded that my mother write the words. So I was read to a lot from an early age. And one thing my mother did, which I think was very beneficial, was she read out loud to us for a long time, even after my sister and I um, were able to read independently. And when she read aloud to us, she really stretched us by reading books that were above our reading level. So my first exposure to 19th century literature was probably hearing it read aloud, um, which is interesting because so many people in that period, that's how they consume novels as well. They were serialized in publication. Everyone would sit around the fire and one person, sometimes the only literate person in the room would read aloud and say, well, this is what Dickens or Collins or Braddon has coming out um, this week. So Jane Eyre was probably among the first of those. Um, by the time I was 9, 10, 11, I was reading work from the period independently. I read a lot of Dickens. I read the rest of the Brontes. And then in my teens, I read a lot of Wilkie Collins and Thomas Hardy. And then getting on to Mary Elizabeth Braddon as well. And ultimately, my masters, I focused on Mary Elizabeth Braddon and Wilkie Collins, who are known as Victorian sensation novelists. I went to Oxford, so I studied classics and English. So that was looking at Latin and Greek literature as well as English literature. And again, while I've read widely um, from different periods and there are other periods I love, I, I really love the early modern period. I have a soft spot for bizarre Jacobean and Elizabethan drama, especially tragedies. It was really novels um, that I loved and I had the most heart for. Um, and novels really came into their own in the 19th century. I, I still believe that George Eliot's Middlemarch is probably the best novel ever written in English. Um, and while Oxford was focused on 19th century literature from Great Britain, I, I was reading literature from other countries as well, particularly um, French and Russian 19th century um, literature it was another area of interest for me personally. Um, so doing a master's was a natural next step, but I only was able to afford to do it when I got a scholarship. Um, so I wouldn't have taken on debt in order to do a master's. For me, it was a wonderful year um, to enjoy reading uh, more of the novels I loved and studying them in a little bit more detail. And the novels that I focused on from the 19th century are the accessible ones. They were the popular entertainment of their day. Um, sensation fiction is known for people committing bigamy and murder, wives pushing their husbands down wells, secret passageways, um, you name it, they have it in there. And part of what I enjoyed was even just telling people who hadn't read these things about the plots. Like, you'll never guess what happened next. There was this um, terrible railway crash and they got stuck in the tunnel and they were running out of oxygen. And then this woman started dancing with a feather boa because she thought it was a snake. Um, that's all from one novel called What's Bred in the Bone by Grant Allen, uh, I believe. Um, so I just had a lot of heart for um, the, the, the humor of the period, um, the fact that because the novel was a pretty new form and a popular form, people were playing around with it and um, really enjoying going deep into plot and character. I, I think we have a, a problematic division now of plot from character where character driven fiction is seen as more literary and highbrow and plot is looked down upon. And I've always enjoyed the intermingling of both. And I think that's what the 19th century novel does so well.
So let's start, uh, talk about Bronte's mistress then. Uh, I'm curious how you carved out uh, uh, your story from something that's been researched and studied, you know, the Brontes, obviously. Uh, and you you have this story with Lydia Robinson and Branwell Bronte. Uh, tell me why you decided to focus on Lydia and, and how you created this, this story. Yes. So um, I moved to the U.S. and to New York and Brooklyn um, in late 2014. Um, so just over a year after I started my blog. And when I initially came to the city, I thought I would only be coming to America for a year before returning to Europe or potentially moving on to Asia for my day job. But I fell in love with New York City. Um, I spent the first two years living with just two suitcases worth of clothes and upper belongings. And I was in an apartment with three roommates. Um, but two years later in 2016, I did move into an apartment of my own. And when I did that, I decided to ship my books across the Atlantic. So when I was at Oxford, I had so many books. Um, we needed so many books. I bought them. I had a collection that I really loved and I really missed um, my books. I, I felt very divided from them. And so it was you know, an undertaking, but managed to get them shipped across to me in several large boxes when I moved into my apartment, which I've now been in for, I, I guess it'll be four years um, this fall. And so when they arrived, I really made a deal with myself that I had read most of the books in my collection. I kept them to refer back to, um, but there were a few books I hadn't read. Um, and one of those books was Mrs. Gaskell, Elizabeth Gaskell's um, biography of Charlotte Bronte. Um, Elizabeth Gaskell was another 19th century writer. Um, she most famously wrote North and South, but also novels like Mary Barton, Ruth, Wife and Wives and Daughters. She was a personal friend of Charlotte Bronte. And when Charlotte unfortunately followed the rest of her siblings in dying very young, um, Mrs. Gaskell was the one who wrote that first seminal biography. So I'd read quotations from this before. I had a pretty good idea about how um, Elizabeth Gaskell had established what we now know as the Bronte myth. But this was one of the books I was like, right, I'm going to read this cover to cover. Um, and it must have been one of the first ones I did of that um, because it was around a month later. I was reading the biography and I came across um, Elizabeth Gaskell's description of who we now know as Lydia Robinson. Um, in the biography, she doesn't actually name her, but she calls her this profligate woman who tempted Branwell Bronte into sin. It's a really cutting character assassination. Um, she says she made love to him even in front of her children. She says in this case, it was the woman who did the seducing. And she really painted Branwell as this innocent victim of this malevolent um, older woman who had gone against all the social mores of her time. And just reading this, um, I had known vaguely that Branwell had had an affair or it was rumored he'd had an affair with his boss's wife before, but I had never really dived into the story. But reading this vitriol, I thought, well, someone's got to have told the 21st century take on this, right? And so I put down the book. I still have the bookmark in the page where I put down the book. And it, I um, started Googling to see if anyone had written a novel from Lydia Robinson's perspective. Um, because as you say, the Brontes are so well known, they're so well loved, um, and there's so much about their story that has been told time and again. 
um, about their mother and their um, older sister's deaths, about them writing their novels, using their pseudonyms, their early deaths, like all of that has been documented by biographers and by novelists um, many times and also in film. And so I just couldn't believe it went after some frantic Googling, I found that nobody had told this story in particular, and especially from Lydia's perspective. Like that's what I wanted to do was the 21st century answer to Mrs. Gaskell. And I think behind that, um, I love the Bronte sisters. I love their writings. I'm particularly partial to Charlotte's writings. Um, but I did have a point of irritation with the Brontes and especially with Charlotte. I, I think that Anne, especially in the Tenant of Wildfell Hall does something very different. But Charlotte's heroines are by and large, poor, plain, young and virginal. And Lydia Robinson was from a pretty wealthy family. She was older, she's 43 when my novel starts. Um, by all accounts, she was beautiful. And she was sexually experienced. She'd had five children um, by this point, one of whom had unfortunately died at only three years old. And yet she was still a woman. And this was the empathy fail that I saw on Charlotte's part. Um, it's the empathy fail I'd reacted to when I was quite young in Jane Eyre as well, where Jane is you know, not the nicest towards Blanche Ingram, who she really resents for being wealthier and more beautiful than she is. And I started to think you could have a protagonist that had all these advantages and yet there's no divorce. She can't own her own property. She's restricted at every turn. She can barely go out by herself. Her life is restricted in all of these ways. And I want to write that story. And so um, I did a lot of research. I, I dug into everything that I could find that had ever been written about Bramwell Bronte and his affair with Lydia, um, which it's a lot. There's been a lot of theories over the years, some of them a little bit crackpot. Um, but I was almost like a woman possessed. I did a full year of research, but then I wrote the novel pretty quickly in under six months, I think. Um, of course, there are rounds of revision after that and beta readers, et cetera. But I was just obsessed with the idea that if I didn't tell this story, somebody else would. We're living in a time of historical fiction where there are a lot of stories of the women's stories that have been overlooked or ignored, and especially the women behind the great men well, what I was interested in here was that Branwell wasn't a great man. It was his sister who were sisters who were great women. And this was another woman with a different point of view who their lives were deeply enmeshed with, um, but they had judged. And I wanted to tell a story from her perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, that must've been a very exciting moment when, you know, you discovered this, this story that had gone untold. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm not a big believer in love at first sight. Um, but I think when it comes to ideas for novels, that's the closest that I can describe it to. I, I felt like I'd been struck by lightning. Um, and the more I dug into it, the more excited I got, because I think I had that, or oh, maybe it's a fluke. Um, maybe when I dive in, it won't be that interesting, but every single detail I uncovered, um, from, this, from hearing what had happened to Lydia's daughters, um, to learning about her next marriage, like everything just fell into place. And the more I dug in, the more I was like, this is a wonderful story that I need to tell. And with the new novel I'm working on, which I, I won't say anything about yet, but I, I had that similar moment. Um, and again, the same feeling of, well, maybe if I dive in, it'll get less interesting, but instead the, every layer you peel back, there's more there to discover and to build from. 
Well, your, your passion really comes through just, just in this interview alone. And I think it certainly shows in the story itself. And also just hearing you talk about books and how and your admiration for them and your care for them. Uh, what does your bookshelf look like in your apartment? Well, it's grown a lot even since I shipped all of um, the books over. Um, so I now have three bookcases in my apartment and I'm definitely running out of room. Um, I am definitely a proponent for organizing at least fiction alphabetically. And I got really mad about hardcover books that are too tall because then they don't fit on some of my shelves and I have to have a random selection of books that are too large at the end. I'm still looking for better suggestions of how to group my nonfiction. Um, right now I have all of the literature and history related stuff um, together and organized chronologically and then have gone by last name of the writer for anything else. But I do think it's a little bizarre to have books about ballet mixed in with advertising, mixed in with cookbooks. Um, so I might pivot again and go to something a little bit more thematic. That's that's wonderful. Um, there, there's certainly a lot we could talk about with, with the book, but uh, one thing I wanna ask is, is the difference for readers who are familiar with 19th century literature and the Brontes and readers who aren't? And and I'm speaking specifically about something you, you wrote on your blog about the secret diaries of Charlotte Bronte. And you say that for those well-versed in Bronte's work, the joy of reading comes in playing and spotting the sources. So for some readers, I think they will be doing that with, with your book. But then there are other readers who won't have that that de delving look into it. So tell me how it's different for the different kinds of readers. Yes, um, I think a great analogy for this is I, I just mentioned ballet, right, with nonfiction. And I like going to the ballet or the opera, but I don't know that much about it. So when I go, I just sit back and enjoy. I enjoy the music. I think it's beautiful. I like lo looking at the sets. I might have an emotional reaction, um, but I can't technically take it apart. So afterwards, I can't talk about like, oh, how well they hit the notes in that aria or, oh, he did four pirouettes there where they normally do three or I might be using the wrong terminology even now. And I think when it comes to being a reader, there are different ways to read as well. So for instance, uh, if you're writing a novel, you may find that you start reading books and saying, ah, that's the inciting incident. And this is the climax. And you're able to take the book apart like that. Other people might not know that a fight scene is the climax, but they might say, oh my goodness, I love that fight scene. It was really exciting. And they're still getting the emotional response. And I think for historical fiction, it's similar as well. You have some people who don't know anything about a period or a historical character, and they just want to be swept away in the story. And they'll learn some facts along the way. And maybe if they really enjoy the book, it'll inspire them to read the author's note or do a little bit more digging and work out what was true and what wasn't true. If it's a period that you're um, really familiar with, then it becomes a very different game where as you're reading, you're like, oh, wow, that's what they did with that piece of information. Or that's a really interesting take on this theory. And so I think even in the early reviews I've been getting, I've been seeing it go both ways with some people talking about they've never read anything by the Brontes and now this has made them want to dive into that and see what they're all about. Other people are able to read the book and say, oh, I could see how this was tied to this incident in Wuthering Heights 
or, oh, it's really interesting um, that you made the rationale for Bramwell being dismissed on this day um, for this reason. Um, there are also kind of Easter eggs that you can start to put in for your really sophisticated readers. Often those are linguistic. And for me, I almost see them as jokes. Um, for instance, there was there were some people in the early 20th century who argued that um, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte must have been written by Branwell because it was too genius to have been written by a woman. Um, so I have one line that Branwell says where he follows up by saying, Emily and I have spoken about it often, um, which is my joke in saying that he's stealing the words out of Emily's mouth versus um, being vice versa. Um, there's also another kind of fun interplay for me in this book, which is um, the link to the film, The Graduate um, and the book. Um, so in The Graduate, you have Benjamin Braddock, initials BB, um, sleeping with an older woman, Mrs. Robinson, and uttering that famous line, are you trying to seduce me? Mm -hmm. um, some people believe that this is based on the Lydia Robinson, Branwell Bronte story, Branwell Bronte, Benjamin Braddock. And so I put in at least two, I think, subtle references um, to The Graduate, one in a line about seduction and one which echoes some of what's said in that famous movie scene with the wedding, um, which he interrupts at the end of that movie. Um, so I think you put in different things for different people. Some of them are, are just for you. Um, there is even um, a, a theory which I think has been totally disproven about Branwell Bronte um, abusing the son, Lydia's son, and his care, Ned. And so I, I tried to interplay with that theory where um, Ned um, interrupts um, Branwell by going to the monk's house late at night. Um, but my twist on it is that he, he found Branwell drunk and that's what's traumatized him versus anything more malicious. That's very interesting. I, after hearing you say this, I think I'd be tempted to read the novel more than once to try and pick up on some of those Easter eggs. The last thing I want to ask is, and try to explain this without telling a master class, you, you say research plus empathy equals storytelling. What, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so that really comes out of both my approach to writing and my day job. Um, so in advertising, there's a lot of having to understand um, a target market who may be like you or not like you. And you can read a lot of charts and you can read studies about people. Um, but then all that that really gives you is data and what takes it to storytelling is being able to put yourself in their shoes and their position and then bring some humanity to it. And I feel like the process of writing historical fiction is is very similar. Um, you can study the facts about somebody. Um, you can walk in their footsteps. I, I went to the area where Lydia Robinson and her family lived um, by Little and Great Usburn. I stood by their graves. I read the 18 surviving letters that Lydia wrote, which are now in the Bronte Parsonage. And I collected a lot of facts from the furniture in their house um, to the inventory of books that were at Fort Green Hall, to everything that any of the Brontes have written that we know about in their letters about the family. But then you have to make a leap um, beyond what we know to be true. And that leap is really about putting yourself in that position and saying, what would that be like? And I think one of my biggest gripes with historical fiction is when I feel like, like 
like that leap is unsuccessful or like we've just transposed our 21st century ideas and values into the head of a character from then and that doesn't really interest me i'm more interested in saying what would the experience be like and particularly with lydia's story i was imagining what would it be like to be a woman with the with the constraints of this period and i don't think the answer is that every single woman would be saying why why can't women vote and this is unfair and i should be able to work for a living and that is not lydia's response in my story in fact she thinks that having a job is one of the most demeaning things a woman can do it's one of the reasons she looks down on anne bronte and the other bronte sisters um and i had to think back into like if you were raised with these values if you've been told all these things all your life how would you respond and what kind of person would you become and Bronte's mistress is written in the first person, which means I had to get really close into Lydia, not just what she says and what she does, but what she thinks and what she feels and her reaction to the world. And there's only so much research that can get you there. Um, the next step of a novelist is really to try and put yourself aside and do that to kill a mockingbird thing about stepping in somebody else's shoes and walking around in them. Well, just speaking as a historical novelist myself, that, that is incredibly insightful. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Uh, do you want to tell readers, I know you, you said you're working on something right now. You didn't want to say too much about it. What would you like to tell readers about your current work in progress? Um, well, again, it's historical fiction. I am straying outside of the 19th century, which um, I was a little bit nervous about, but I think anybody who's reading my, been reading my blog for a while knows that I'm not always 100% um, kind of fo focused or forced about my um, constraints on the century. Um, for instance, while it's called The Secret Victorianist, I've always said I covered the 19th century just so I can put some Jane Austen in there too. And sometimes I claim the long 19th century in order to stray past 1900 and maybe go up to World War One. Um, so that's been interesting. It also has taken me outside of England, um, which has been really interesting, but also challenging when some of your sources are in another language. And it's brought me into the art world. Um, art history is something that I'm really interested in, um, but I'm not a highly visual thinker. I'm very much a words person. And so part of the empathy I've had to be going through on this one is trying to imagine what the world looks like and feels like if you're an artist um, who's thinking about light and color and seeing the world in a very different way. Um, so that's been one of the most challenging parts of this book. A again, I'm writing about real people, um, but not people who are as well known or as well documented as the Brontes. And that's been exciting as well. I think that historical fiction is something that you write in the gaps that history leaves you. And I've had some bigger gaps. So it's been nice to let my imagination run away a little bit. Well, great. That I'm um, sure I will look forward to that uh, when it comes out. Thank you. So I've been talking with Fanula Austin, author of the novel Bronte's Mistress. Fanula, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me.
That sounds good. Are you going to do liner notes or anything? Or is there anything I can give you for that? What is a liner note? So they always say on the um, Writing Excuses podcast, I think it's so, if there's anything that we mention in passing, your uh, people can follow along with the notes and they can be like, and here is like a picture of the house we spoke about at two minutes, 30 seconds. Oh. Or like, here is the, or like you can do people's website links or yeah. Um, so I was just thinking if there's anything like, when we mention Mrs. Gaskell's biography, you put the full name of the biography, but I just didn't know if you were doing that because of the... Okay. Well, since I don't know what they are, I probably won't, but yeah. I'm gonna, now I'm going to Google it and figure out what it is and uh, see how I can take advantage of that.